Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, my name is Adam Hirschfelder. I'm the director of the Marine Conversations Department of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, as some folks may remember, uh, we started doing marine programming about three or four years ago. We were doing about six to eight events a year. We have now grown to some 20 uh, events a year with support from the Marine Community Foundation, which has a relationship uh, with the Buck Institute, as well as relevant wealth advisors. So with the support from those two, we are growing our efforts. And uh, over the past year to year and a half, one of the uh, most special partnerships we have is with the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. So it's really wonderful to have you all here, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brianna Stubbs, who's going to serve as our moderator tonight, and who is Buck Institute Translator of Science. Brianna, thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's program, and welcome to the Buck Institute for Research on Aging here in the wonderful Novato, California. I'm proud to work here as the lead translational scientist, and that means that I get to collaborate with all the fantastic principal investigators here at the Buck and work with them to make their science a reality out there in our community. As you heard, here at the Buck, our mission is to end the threat of age-related disease for this generation and for future generations. Everything that we do here is focused on helping people live better, longer, and that's our mission statement. We believe that it is possible for people to enjoy their lives as much at 95 as they do at 25. And to achieve this, we're seeking a more comprehensive understanding of the biology of aging. Thus, tonight's program with Dr. Daniel Levitin on his book called Successful Aging is perfect for all of us here at The Buck, and I'm pleased to serve as tonight's moderator. So at this time, I am pleased to introduce Dr. Daniel Levitin. As many of you may know, Daniel is the author of many best-selling books, including This Is Your Brain on Music. He's a neuroscientist by training, and Daniel has now turned his attention to how our brains develop over our lifespan and how we can think differently about the last decades of our life. So, Daniel, welcome to the Buck Institute. Thank uh, you, Brianna. So, I mean, why don't we actually start with what would you do if you had 20 years extra of life? That's a great question. Um, I guess it depends on when those 20 years could occur. If they could occur at any point, I would have met my wife 20 years earlier. So I'd have longer to spend with her. Is she here tonight in the audience? No, she's not here. Uh, uh, But if the 20 years are tacked on to the end... Um, which is what I, I take the question to mean. If I can live 20 years longer, I think I would learn to tr- try and learn to play pedal steel guitar. So h- how many instruments can you play? Because as a musician, you must have quite an impressive number. Well, I haven't really counted, but I, I, I can play six or eight. But that, that, one's, uh, that one's a whole other world. And, I mean, that, that requires a very long commitment, and it's not like anything else I play. Hmm. You know that country instrument that goes... Does anyone else, anyone else know that instrument? I don't. <laughs> so h- how long do you think it would take you to learn that instrument? 20 and, years. Oh, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think um, our stereotypes are about aging that mean that, that up until now you haven't addressed that or you wouldn't think that that's possible? <laughs> well, uh, I have my hands full running a research lab and... 
uh, writing uh, scientific papers and trying to popularize them and playing the guitar and the piano and singing and performing. I mean, it's a, it's a full life. And I think the idea of taking up pedal steel guitar at, at any point over the last 20 years would have meant I'd have less time for those other things. Um, and I think I would have to drop another instrument or two in order to make room for it. I, yeah, but yeah, if I had 20 years, that'd be different. But I think the idea here is that all of us have things that we kind of tuck away in our minds as things that we want to do, and we don't do them. And one of the secrets to a, um, I think, a happy life is to step outside your life for a minute and say, you know, I, I could make time for that. Um, I could carve out 20 minutes a day and do that which is uh, kind of what I did with the piano. So the, the piano, pedal steel is a whole, like I say, that, that's a strange whole other world, so set that aside. But, you know, I play the piano about 20 minutes a day, and I've been doing that uh, for the last 20 years, and it's very rewarding, and I build, it builds on it. And um, you, the, the problem is that uh, as you get older and older, you realize, well, I didn't stop and take time to do that thing. And now it's not really too late, but it hasn't been a part of my life all this time. I think the classic one is for working couples, not spending enough time with your spouse or with the children. Uh, and then pretty soon it's over. So I think the key to, a key to successful aging at any decade of your life is to identify the things that are important to you and just start doing them, make time for them. So one stereotype that kind of springs to mind is that it gets harder to learn new things as, as we age. And we often think about, say, learning a language and people are always pushing children to learn languages younger and younger because it's easier for them. So what do you think about uh, how difficult it might be to learn new instruments now versus when you're a child? Well, uh, the, the, the fact is your brain is configured differently between, say, the ages of zero and ten uh, the brain at that point is sponge-like and uh, maximally so. And the primary mission of the brain during the first decade of life is to take as much experience as it can acquire and form neural pathways that correspond to those experiences. Um, and then starting around 10 to 12, the primary mission of your brain shifts to start pruning out all the unneeded connections. And that pruning process continues for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you can't learn anything after age 12, of course, uh, but it means that the learning takes on a different qualitative aspect. So the reason young children are so good at learning instruments and language is their, their brains are maximally receptive to um, structure and patterns that are required for those activities. Uh, and it's why after, and what happens is all children, to the extent that we know the name Noam Chomsky, it's because of a, a big idea he had in the 50s, which is that your brain can uh, learn the basic sounds of any of the world's languages equally well. So it's not the case that a kid born of Chinese parents in China can't learn German as easily as it can learn Chinese if given the opportunity and the environmental input. There's nothing in the genes that that say it's going to learn Chinese, it's the environment. And um, if you try to learn a language after the age of 12 or so, you're going to speak it with an accent because although the 300 different phonetic sounds were available to you as a child, uh, your brain 
prunes out those pathways that it would have needed, which is why Japanese people have trouble with the RL distinction, for example, uh, if they learn English later, and why I still have trouble in French between U and U, which sound identical to my ear, but French people tell me they're entirely different. Uh, and I've learned to make the uh, Hindi frontodental DH sound, which is da, like dharma, which is different than, say, DARPA. I, I can make the difference, but I can't hear it because the pathways got pruned. But the, the, the problem is you ask a professor a simple question and you get a long answer. <laughs> but the, uh, the, you can learn an instrument or a language at any age. It does become harder, but it's not significantly harder at 70 than it would be at 40. And um, I keep running into a number of people who have taken a, an instrument somewhat late in life, and they love it. Are there any famous success stories? Well, here's the thing. Uh, when you take up something later in life, there are. Uh, but the, the, I think the idea is when you take up something later in life, you have to have reasonable expectations. So somebody who starts playing piano at 60 is not going to be the next Arthur Rubinstein and be touring the world as a concert pianist. But they can get pretty good. And so a, a somewhat famous success story is my uh, former professor, Herb Clark from Stanford, the psycholinguist, who uh, didn't begin playing piano till he was 70, and he played 20 minutes a day. I mean, till he was 50. He played 20 minutes a day. He's 75 now, and he's really good. He's not going to be a concert pianist, but he can entertain himself and his friends, and he can play Chopin and Beethoven. But I think, though, in other domains, the big success stories are people like Julia Hurricane Hawkins, who you must know about. Well, I've heard you speak about her. It's a great story. You should tell everyone. Um, anybody heard of her? She's my new hero. She's a 103-year-old competitive runner, a retired school teacher from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She's about four foot ten. Uh, she'd never been particularly athletic, but after she retired, she took up competitive sports at age 75 uh, as a cyclist. And at age 100, she decided she wanted to be a runner, so she trained. And this year, she took home two gold medals in the senior games and broke records for the 50 and the 100. She's 103. So that, that's somebody learning something later in life. <laughs> But for me, the first achievement would be to get to 103 before I would start thinking about winning any championship medals. But that said, actually, I have a world record for being the youngest person to row the English Channel. So maybe I'll need to go back there when I hit 100 and, and try and be the oldest person as well. Oh, I think you should do a Jack LaLanne. You know, some of the people in the audience will remember the local hero, Jack LaLanne, who for his 70th birthday towed in his teeth a boat from the mainland of San Francisco to Alcatraz. I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> oh, you could do it in the English Channel if you want. Yeah, still maybe not. Um, <laughs> so um, we've think, thought, thought a little bit about um, the changes in our ability to sort of pick up things. Do we know, I mean, we actually have found out recently that there are populations of, of brain stem cells actually hiding out in our like nasal cavity, I think. So do we know anything about um, how science is setting us up to maybe like regenerate uh, brain cells as we age? 
Yeah, so I'll just add that it's a myth that you don't make new neural connections when you get older. Neuroplasticity, the process of, of forging new connections, happens throughout the lifespan. Uh, and in fact, to a neuroscientist, that's what learning is. Anytime you learn something or hear a new piece of music or meet a new person, you're creating new neural connections, new synaptic connections. We're not sure if you grow new brain cells. We think so. We're not sure. Uh, but you certainly grow new pathways through, to, the, to your last dying breath. The question about um, stem cells um, has come up uh, alongside questions about some of the longevity chemicals that we find in tardigrades and axolotls and jellyfish and a number of species that uh, can regenerate any limb or organ uh, that's damaged or, or tentacle or appendage uh, and uh, have the ability to effectively not age. They tend to die from predation, not from age. And there's a lot of work going on to try and identify those chemicals or try to uh, figure out a way to um, identify and manipulate stem cells that are found throughout the body in order to uh, generate new brain cells, such as when you lose some due to stroke or um, other injury or just... Uh, um, senescence. The, the problem with brain cells is that I could put in a cell, in theory, to replace one that had died, but I can't put in the memory of what that cell had its connections to and the strengths and weights. There's a parallel, a fascinating parallel uh, body of work. Sebastian Sung is one of the big names in it. He recently left MIT for Princeton. And what they're doing is uh, work on what's called the connectome. So the genome, as you know, was sequenced uh, some years ago. Uh, we, we counted all the genes in the human body, and we're trying to figure out what all of them do and, uh, in the brain and the body. What Sebastian Sung and others are trying to do is map all of the connections in the brain and somehow figure out how to assign numerical values to every connection so that in theory, they do some kind of brain scan that they don't know how to do yet, but they would have all of the connectivity, which might actually be the contents of all your memory and all your thoughts and hopes and desires and aspirations, so that if one little part gets damaged by stroke or by a tumor or some, you know, just a concussion, those can be replaced with either some stem cell, new cells, or some uh, silicon cells, but then reset to where they were. See, this is incredible because it reminds me a little bit of uh, phrenology. So this is back before we could image the brain, and people would think that the bumps on the, br on the skull were sort of a some sign of your personality, and maybe that was some like map into the brain just by looking at the skull on the outside. And, um, you know, there have been all kinds of studies where we've looked at people who have lost some function in some part of their brain early on in life. And as we were sort of discussing, maybe more so at a young age, but the brain can adapt. And so those connections weren't necessarily where they would be for someone who hadn't had that injury. So you can have parts of the brain compensating. Um, so do you think that a connectome, that, do you think that's a bit of a wild dream or do you think it's a, a possible thing we could see in the future? Well, I mean, I, I think given enough time, it's, it's a possibility, but that, that time could be a thousand years. I mean, some people think it's going to be 50 to 75, hard to say. Uh, but 
um, the you know the discovery of penicillin was accidental and it revolutionized medicine. It was just you, you probably all know the story. Uh, it was actually in a lab just down the road from where I studied over in Oxford with Alexander happened. Fleming. Mm-hmm. So Alexander Fleming was had had one trait for a, uh, a bacteriologist that really should be a deal breaker for having a job. He was terribly messy. <laughs> And he went on August holiday, and he piled up a bunch of Petri dishes that he had in the lab uh, on a bench. And he went away for a month, and he came back, and he'd been studying Streptococcus. And um, he he finally, when he comes back, he goes to clean his Petri dishes of the Streptococcus and stuff. And one of them doesn't have any Streptococcus in it anymore. It just has mold. Now, most people would just keep cleaning the dishes, but... He was curious. Sounds like a typical, like, student. Right, right. He was curious about why this dish developed a mold and why that mold had the property that it got rid of the strep. And it turned out it was from a genus of mold called penicillus. And so, hence penicillin. penicillin. And um, it was accidental, but the, the other thing was he was alert to... Um, some ano- something anomalous, and he was curious. And I'm bringing that up because it turns out that curiosity is one of the biggest predictors of how well you're going to do in life at any phase of life. And it's certainly one of the biggest predictors of how you're going to age. Uh, and just to you know, connect it back, you know, Sebastian Sung and others are curious about the connectome. It may be one of these cases where they don't actually do what they thought they were going to do, but along the way, they'll find something extraordinary that changes the way we repair the brain. Yeah, that's a good insight there. So um, let's talk a bit more about curiosity because it's something that you write about. You're curious about it. I'm I'm curious to hear about curiosity. So um, curiosity is a personality trait. Um, If we weren't necessarily born and feeling like we were a particularly curious person, some people don't seem like it. Is that something that we can change as, as if it's so important for helping us to age better? So uh, we tend not to think of our personality traits as being genetically influenced, but of course they are. Uh, I mean, we, when we think of genes, most of us think of our hair color or our height, things like that. Um, uh, for a runner, whether you've got a preponderance of slow twitch fibers or fast twitch fibers, which determine whether you're going to be a sprinter or a distance runner, you're a distance runner, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, what's the, how, how, how far do you run every week? Oh, um, maybe 30 to 40 miles. I don't think in my entire life, if you put together all my running, <laughs> it's, it's been 30 to 40 miles. But yes, uh, I'm a sprinter. We have different, we were sort of born with different... Uh, when I try and run 100 meters, it doesn't go very well. I'm very slow. You'd probably run 100 meters faster than I would. Uh, 10 seconds, 10.2. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no, he would win. Uh, so um, the... Uh, the idea here is that your genetics can give you a predisposition towards things like curiosity or conscientiousness or religiosity or generosity. Um, and it's also influenced by the culture in which you're raised uh, and the, you know whether you're encouraged or nurtured or given positive feedback by your family for these exhibiting these traits. And then it, um, it's a, your personality traits are influenced by just... Um, what we call opportunity or, or chance. Uh, you may not ever have anything bad happen, which means you don't have your resilience tested. So you don't know. 
or um, getting a disease for many people causes them to become more conscientious than they otherwise would have been, that, that random occurrence, let's say, uh, because if, especially diabetes. Uh, if you've got diabetes and you're not conscientious, you're dead. So that can cause a shift. But the good news is that although there are these genetic predispositions towards personalities and they're influenced by culture and opportunity, you can change your personality at any age. Julia Hawkins did. She became more athletic and more adventuresome. Um, or Carl, uh, Carmen Herrera, 104-year-old painter in New York City who didn't even become known till she was 89, uh, and now her work's hang in the Whitney. Uh, there was a certain amount of tenacity that came out that she decided to stick with, you know, or grit, whatever you want to call it, stick to um, Maybe she was born with it, but it certainly was put to the test. Uh, she's still painting every day, 104 years old. I, I tried to interview her. She was too busy. <laughs> um, so, you know, the whole field of psychotherapy is based on the idea that you can change your personality. And although psychotherapy doesn't work for everybody, and not every therapist is good for everybody, uh, as a whole it works. And there are, But there are a lot of different ways to change your personality at any age. That's just one of them. Another is meditation or yoga or religion. Religions teach that you can change yourself. In some religions, uh, you can re- receive absolution if, if you, you know, actually apologize and, and feel remorse for the bad things you've done with your dying breath. You've changed your personality. You've become remorseful and, and uh, contrite. Uh, and then there's drugs. Uh, and I mean, I mean, you know, drugs prescribed by a physician uh, in that um, take curiosity. Uh, curiosity is, to some extent, uh, fueled by dopamine. Dopamine is a well-known part of the brain's reward circuit. It rewards you for exploratory behaviors. Mice and rats who are put in an eight-arm maze and deprived of dopamine don't explore their environment. Rats and mice that are given more dopamine explore it more. Uh, we go through cycles of dopamine ups and downs throughout our lives. Teenagers have a whole bunch of it, which make them more exploratory, maybe too much of it. But um, as we age, every decade after 50, we start to lose uh, efficiency in the dopamine production and distribution system, and it makes us less curious. Um, Some people have an actual clinical dopamine deficiency and a dopamine agonist, sometimes in the form of an antidepressant or a mild stimulant or drugs like Provigil, which we don't actually know how they work, but they are effectively dopamine and adenosine agonists, um, give you back a sense of curiosity. You don't feel like you're on drugs. You just feel a little bit younger, more curious, more engaged, more interested in the environment. So increasingly, we're seeing people over the age of 75 uh, who take what I would call a subclinical dose of the drug, not, not a full, full-on dose, maybe a quarter or a half dose, who really have a, a great improvement in the quality of their life uh, just because if you're more curious, um, you're more interested in things. And in general, people uh, like being around interested people more than they like being around interesting people. So I want to come back to curiosity a little bit more um, in a second, but I think this idea of of using drugs to take us back to quote-unquote normal, 
um, as we age is an interesting thought. And, you know, something that I've experienced a lot here in Silicon Valley is that same attitude being applied in much younger people who are looking to um, optimize and move themselves along this sort of spectrum of towards better performance using using drugs or using, farm, you know, uh, botanical agents or things like that. Um, how early do you think we can start this process of slowing the decline from whatever normal is for us, which is going to be different individual to individual, through to wherever we're going to end up? Well, so there's an evolutionary angle and an ethical angle on this. Uh, the evolutionary angle is that um, we didn't evolve to be 80 years old. I mean, e evolution pretty much is done with us after we've procreated because... The, Evolution require in order to pass on our genes, we have to have children. And once you're beyond childbearing age, there's nothing that could be in your genome. Oh, well, almost nothing that could be passed on. Uh, there's some, some small exceptions. of, uh, But for the most part, we didn't live very long. And uh, natural selection didn't work on what happens to you when you're over the age of, let's say, 40 or 50. And so traits that we might develop or... Um, find in decline as we age weren't acted upon by natural selection. So the evolutionary angle on all this is that if your dopamine production starts to decline when you're 70 or 80, you can say, well, that's just a natural course of aging. Well, yes, but um, now that we're living longer, um, it may not be natural. It's just that evolution hasn't had a time to catch up with the fact that we're living longer and healthier than ever before. The ethical angle on this is um, is interesting, and I've grappled with this. Uh, you know, college I, I'm a college professor, and, and college students take Ritalin and, and amphetamines and Adderall when they don't need it because they're trying to get a competitive edge. A lot of medical students take these drugs because uh, there's so much to memorize. And uh, um, this has been going on since the 50s. This is nothing new. Um, so the question is, is it ethical to take drugs not to restore your brain to what it might have been, uh, but just to give yourself a competitive edge? Um, and again, I, I, without, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but um, if you're 40 and you've got some disease that causes your dopamine to decrease or your serotonin to decrease, I mean an organic disease that we've got a name for, and we give you a drug to restore your levels, that seems fine. Uh, for the same same thing as, you know, you lose your hearing, you get a hearing aid. That seems fine. Uh, you might even get a cochlear implant, which is in the brain. You're putting some kind of um, um, digital device implanted in your brain. That's what a cochlear implant is. But uh, it's not giving you Superman's hearing. It's, it's just, you know, restoring you to back to the way you were. Uh, we treat diabetes with insulin pumps. There are all these organic diseases that it seems fair to treat. But what if I could give you a drug that kept you awake for 20 hours and somehow magically gave you all the restful sleep in the four hours that you had? Ethically, that somehow seems unfair, that you'd have an unfair advantage if you're competing for a job or a promotion. On the other hand... What if it was a cancer researcher who wanted to take it? They were just on the cusp of a discovery. And boy, they could, you know, they could save millions of lives if only they had this drug for two years. It gets a little bit thorny. The, the idea of t people in their 20s and 30s uh, taking 
uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, they're microdosing and, and this and that. It's an ethical question, question and, and I'm just a simple country neuroscientist. I'm not an ethicist. So I, I don't feel that I have a, a standing to weigh in on it. But you might. Well, no, I was going to ask you, if you could have had access to the things that are available, more widely available now, or if you had access to the knowledge that you have now about what happens to the brain as we age, would you have changed anything that you did or started um, any, any preventative measures early on, perhaps? Yeah, well, if I, uh, if I, could, if I could take what I, I know now and, and give it to my 30-year-old self, I would practice much better sleep hygiene. Uh, than I did then. Uh, I would go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time and make sure I got eight or nine hours sleep no matter what. That's neurally protective. Uh, It's a good habit to be in. Uh, We don't actually know if it's neurally protective 30 or 40 years in the future, but by the time you're 70, if you don't have good sleep hygiene, uh, your memory impairment can be so severe that it can be misattributed to Alzheimer's. Um, I think that I would have... um, gotten on a more varied plant-based diet earlier on. I wouldn't have shunned meat, but more plants, less candy, less, you know, things like that. Hmm. So, I mean, actually, there's a lot... But drugs, not... No, not drugs. You wouldn't have taken anything. Yeah, fair enough. Although, as, as you and I talked about before, um, uh, after reading the research that I did for the book and talking to people who were in the aging field or the anti-aging field... Um, everybody I know in the field has started taking metformin and has started doing intermittent fasting. Metformin is a drug that's typically prescribed to people who have high blood sugar, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Um, there's enough evidence now from uh, Cynthia Kenyon and others that insulin signaling may be a risk factor for Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. And metformin is one of these things, it's a drug that's been around for 50 years, it has very, very low rates of side effects, there doesn't seem to be any harm, and so a lot of people are taking it. This is one of my uh, own personal favorite topics, actually thinking about um, how brain energy metabolism and how the brain's ability to use sugar as an energy source can change over time. And it actually really shocked me to learn that um, if you put someone in an MRI scanner and give their brain a sort of a precursor for glucose that'll make that brain light up when it's burning glucose, you can start to see uh, declines in people. Uh, in the sugar-burning ability of people that are going to get Alzheimer's years and years in advance of them having any symptoms. So it's this very very powerful link between energy provision in the brain and then eventual health in the brain. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Sort of as it it plays out, you know, what should we be eating to fuel our brains as we age? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, I almost wrote... The neuro diet, as a, as the book. Uh, uh, but the, the more I study, that's how this book started out. Actually, was the neuro diet. And the more I read the peer-reviewed literature on diet, the more I realized we just don't know enough, and and we don't have any diet uh, that appears to be neurally protective that's been tried for more than five or six years in a controlled set of careful, rigorous studies. So. Any diet might look good for five years. What you really want to know is what are the people going to look like 20 or 30 years down the line. And so we have to wait. So um, what we do know or think we know as neuroscientists about brain food is you need protein. 
uh, and in particular uh, lean proteins like you get from fish or uh, certain fowl, plant proteins. You need omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, uh, they are a precursor to myelin. Um, your neurons have to communicate with each other, and they do so by sending electrical signals down a pathway. And that, just like the wires in your house, that pathway needs to be insulated. And so the insulation is called myelin. It's, um, it's a fatty substance. Uh, dietary fats, vitamin B12, omega-3s help with the production of myelin. Uh, as you age, the myelin um, can't be replenished as fast as it used to be, particularly after age 60. Um, and if you're B12 deficient, and this is something your doctor probably doesn't test for, but you could ask along with the, the regular blood test. If you're B12 deficient after age 60, you might want to consider B12 supplementation uh, in order to stay myelinated uh, to help avoid some of the slowing down and other problems uh, that you get. So omega-3s, as you get them in fatty fish, not in supplements. It seems the, the latest research is that um, there's virtually no supplements that actually help, and some of them are harmful. The uh, Sorry, but it's a, it's a multi-billion-dollar-a-year industry. There's a lot of money there uh, for people to push stuff on you. Um, the latest research on vitamin E, for example, as well as on fish oil, is that they actually may be harmful and cause cancer in rigorous controlled studies, uh, outweighing their benefits. You do need vitamin E and B, and, um, is the point, and fish oil, but when you get them in natural food sources, you're getting them alongside a bunch of other micronutrients that help you metabolize them and that work in partnership with the thing you're interested in. You can't you can't just take one element out of a food like omega-3 or antioxidants and say and start asking the question, what does this do all by itself? Um, because that's not how the body usually gets it. And, and we've gone down a lot of dead ends that way. So the neuro diet is making sure you've got enough B12, you're getting enough fatty foods, um, that you don't allow your insulin levels to spike too often meaning that you want to avoid the sugars that do that, such as um, glucose and corn syrup and um, you know, potatoes. But on the other hand, you know, eating is supposed to be fun, and I, I don't believe in being completely crazy and dogmatic about it. I think you have to allow yourself to have fun. Otherwise, it's impossible to stick to any diet. Your willpower just... Very few people have the willpower to avoid all these tempting things. So... If you'll allow me to indulge in a personal... Of course. I, I was in Montreal yesterday, and the day before that in Ottawa, and the day before that in Toronto, and the day before that in Winnipeg. I've been on a book tour since January 5th. And for the most part, I've been in a different city every day. And um, I finally got home today, and my wife and I went out to lunch, and I got a vanilla malted. I got, a, I got a veggie burger and a salad and a vanilla malted, and it was amazing. <laughs> and, you know, my wife and I talk about it. She's a neuroscientist. You know, it's not like I'm eating, it's not like I'm engaging in a vanilla malted milkshake and French fry diet. <laughs> you know, a couple of times a year I'll have, have a milkshake. And, you know, maybe once a week I have a tablespoon of ice cream. 
And what I've learned is, in my dotage, (laughs) that tablespoon of ice cream is so satisfying that if I were to have like the entire tub or an entire dish, I would, I would not be that much happier. That first taste is so wonderful that from there it's diminishing returns. I don't actually need to finish a bowl or have a bowl. And, you know, the little rewards like that I think are okay. Yeah. So um, I, used to, I used to be an elite rower, and I used to think that the sort of end... Uh, I have the feeling that everything you've done, you're an elite. No. But, but... <laughs> you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Now, i got to work on being an elite um, musician at some point. I've never, never taken that up. But um, So I used to... Um, think that the outcome was the function of every single tiny little decision that I made each day and that you didn't have to make every single one correct. You just had to make the bulk of them to correct, get to where you're going to get to. I, like I think that. I think that people think everything is too binary. It's either right. you're on the wagon or off the wagon when it comes to diet. And I think that can't is not necessarily a helpful framework for thinking about measuring your success and can cause people to, to drop off earlier than they might have done whilst they could still benefit their, their health in the long term. So, um, yeah, there was an awful lot, awful lot of good and useful advice that I think people can take home and, and implement there um, with regards diet. Let's go back and talk a little bit more um, about sleep. Uh, and the other thing that we talk about a lot here at the Buck is exercise as well, because I know that these are things that people can take home and implement. Diet, sleep and exercise. These are three very important things that will help determine our quality of life as we age. So, um, I mean, either of those two you want to attack first, sleep or exercise, you can. So, you know, there are a number of in putting together the book, uh, by the way, I read 4000 peer reviewed papers. It's good you did that so that we didn't have to. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and. Um, there were a number of surprises. There were a number of myths about aging um, uh, that are just not borne out by the research. And on the way to the uh, sleep myth, I'll just uh, uh, st- make a quick pit stop and say uh, there's a myth of failing memory. Uh, certainly you know some people who are older who are having some memory problems, and you may experience memory problems yourself. But uh, we have to be careful here. 20-year-olds have all kinds of memory problems, and they're no worse than what a 70- or an 80-year-old has in general. 20-year-olds lose their cell phones, they forget their computer passwords, they lose their keys, all kinds of memory problems. The difference is in the stories we tell ourselves. The 20-year-old loses something and they go, I got too much on my plate. The 70-year-old says, this is the end. This is the, it's Alzheimer's, (laughs) it's Alzheimer's, it's Alzheimer's, lock me up. Send me to the facility. Same behavior, different story. Um, but there's no evidence that most of us can't sail through our 80s and 90s without you know, perfectly intact memories. A little bit of slowing down because it'd be myelination. Um, and so a little longer maybe to get names, uh, but they're in there. Um, now, sleep, another myth is that older adults don't need much sleep. Total myth. They need eight or nine hours just like the rest of us. The problem is they tend to only get five and a half or six hours. And the reason is that the biological clock uh, in a structure in the uh, 
back of the brain called the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Um, when you're young, it's, it's quite capable of getting the trains running on time. It, effectively, if a train arrives late at the station, it just speeds up uh, on the next leg of the trip through your biological cycle, and it evens everything out. Um, but after about age 60, we see declines in the functionality of this structure, the biological clock, so that if you were to stay up an extra couple of hours, that can mess up your, your memory and your sleep patterns and clock for two weeks, just two hours of, of missed sleep or late sleep even. Sleeping in two hours, going to bed two hours late one night to, to, can, can manifest for two weeks of problems. So sleep hygiene becomes increasingly important. I do devote a whole chapter to it, but um, in the interest of... By the way... All of my research has been funded by uh, government agencies in Canada and the U.S., which means ultimately you all paid for it, and so uh, through your tax dollars. And I'm a firm believer that science exists in the public interest. It's part of the public trust. It should be free. And so every article I've ever written um, is up on my website at daniellevitin.org. Even the ones that I was told when I was published I couldn't post there, they're all posted there. Nobody's given me a takedown notice. And although I do write books and the publisher charges money for them, I do a uh, 100 events like this every year to give the information away for free so that you don't have to pay for it. Uh, well, I guess... I think, actually, you did have to pay for admission, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, that was for the wine. Yeah. That was, well, the, uh, the resveratrol, which is going to help you all live longer, that's right? That's right. But, the, I, mean, the, it, I mean, the point is that um, I'm not making any money from the talk, and, and, I, and you can, there's all kinds of YouTube and, and uh, stuff, uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to give it away for free. Um, in fact, I, I feel it's an ethical obligation to do so. The, the basic thing about uh, sleep is... Go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time. Get eight hours. You might need nine. Sleep in a darkened room. Uh, use earplugs if it's noisy. In the morning, if you're having trouble waking up, get a daylight full-spectrum lamp. Maybe you can buy special devices. They're about $100 that are blue light that you can use for 15 minutes when you first wake up to retrain your biological clock. The, the way the clock works is it takes cues from the environment, and those cues are light and darkness and when you eat your meals. And it's using those as what the Germans call uh, Zeitgebers, time givers, to synchronize the clock. That blue light tells you it's time to wake up. Um, but you don't have to get a fancy device. Just get a $6 thing at Home Depot and put it in your bed lamp or a lamp in the kitchen. Uh, and then um, try to eat your meals at regular times. Avoid alcohol. Um, th those are the basic tricks. Alcohol actually disrupts sleep uh, cycles. It can knock you out, but that doesn't mean you're getting healthy sleep. Uh, and melatonin can be increasingly important after age 70. Um, Again, this is an industry that's dominated by a lot of profiteers. The amount of melatonin your body actually makes two hours prior to sleep is half a milligram. Very hard to find a half a milligram melatonin. If you go to a CVS or any pharmacy, you're going to find five and ten milligram pills. I was at a Walgreens today that was selling 200 milligram pills. And like a lot of biological processes, more is not better. 
there's, you know, this kind of um, U-shaped curve where not enough is bad, too much is bad, you need to be in the Goldilocks zone, and if you're taking more than half a milligram, it's not going to help you sleep better, it's just going to mess up your biological cycle. Melatonin is not a sleeping pill. It's a cue to your biological clock about when nightfall and sleep is supposed to come. And if you take 10 milligram tablets and you're waking up groggy, it can take you days to get it out of your system. The half-life is that long. So, I mean, in that answer, you were saying that two hours can mess you up for two weeks. So how do we time our, our big blowouts, you know, our weekends where we're going to have some alcohol? Um, was there any, are there any mitigation strategies or anything we can do um, beforehand or directly afterwards to get back on even quicker? Well, I, I think the, 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 a couple of things. If you're going to have alcohol, and why not? Alcohol's nice. I would try to have it not within four hours of bedtime. So not the nightcap, and then it knocks you out and you go to sleep. Uh, but, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock, glass of wine, cocktail hour, that's healthier. You give your body some time to uh, metabolize it and work through it so that your sleep cycle can be normal. A 15-minute nap the next day can be the equivalent of an hour and a half of sleep the night before. Uh, sleep too long during the day and you end up with sleep inertia, which makes it hard to wake up again and screws up your cycle again. Hmm. And um, would exercising before you go to bed or in the morning maybe help as well? Does exercise fit into helping you sleep? Exercise definitely helps you sleep. Um, I have not, you may know better than I, uh, but I have not seen any evidence on the optimal time of day to exercise. It depends. I mean, I think there is evidence around when you get the most, the best performance or the right. most endurance right. adaptations, but maybe not as it relates to sleep. Right. So your, your peak performance as an athlete is tied to your chronotype and your chronobiological clock. So you know that there are early birds and there are night owls, and um, that affects where your peak performance is going to be. And um, athletes have figured this out. It, it, there's, I mentioned some studies in the book that competitive world-class athletes tend to gravitate towards sports that uh, have their trials or their games at the time when that person's body is at its peak. And that makes sense. If, if you're trying to play football uh, and, and you're not at your peak at one in the afternoon or whenever the game is played, um, you know, you're not going to excel and, and, and make the team. So... Um, by the way, it was a McGill MD who uh, got, uh, got a lot of the points for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, somebody with an MD was hired by this football team, and the general manager had said, I figured if he had a medical degree and he still wanted to play football, he must really like football. Well, and, knowing what football does to your brain, I think he must really, really like football. Yeah. Yes. Um, clocks. Clocks. Exercise. Exercise. Exercise is helpful for the clock. You don't have to be exercising at your peak performance, but it's good to exercise at the same time every day. Hmm. The, body, the, the body is basically a Republican. It likes things the way they've always been. <laughs> and it doesn't like a lot of change. Make, Daniel, make Daniel great again. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying that republicanism is bad or good. I'm just saying republicans tend to be, I mean, they are the conservative party in our country. They tend to like things the same. The body is like that. Uh, it doesn't want a whole lot of sudden change. So um, getting into a routine is good. And um, the most important thing, though, is not exercise. 
This is the big finding of the last few years. Um, the biggest difference in how you're going to age across the lifespan in your 20s, 30s, 70s, 80s isn't whether you spend an extra 20 minutes a day or a week on your elliptical or whether you add another mile to your, your weekly routine. The biggest difference is just whether every day you get up out of your chair and move around and, and move your whole body, particularly in natural environments. There's something extraordinarily, extraordinarily help, healthful about being out in nature. Um, and having just come from Canada for 10 days, I can tell you it's harder to do there than it is here. Um, in in my home hometown of the Bay Area, it's uh, it's easy to be out in nature all the time. Being in nature activates brain structures that are ancient and primitive. You have to be vigilant because anything can happen. You've got to watch your step because there are uneven trails. All of that is super healthful. And if you can't walk in nature, just walking outside um, is is tremendously protective, neurally protective. The biggest difference we see in Alzheimer's and in aging in general isn't between people who do that extra 20 minutes. It's between people who just get up out of the chair or don't. Hmm. Wow. So, I mean, so it's not, more's not necessarily better. I'm just trying to reconcile what you've just said with, with my, my own personal lifestyle. I like to exercise a lot and I've been told by popular media that exercise does a lot of good things for your brain. And, you know, as I've started to get more into the science, I understand that when we exercise, not only are we moving blood around um, and causing dilation and all of those good things, but we're also releasing a number of um, hormones, for example, yeah. Yeah, that are really good for our brain. Absolutely. So. That's all true. It stabilizes serotonin levels. It, it's absolutely true. I think what I'm, the angle, look, if, if you can do what, what, if people can do what you do. Oh, I'm not, I'm is, not advocating that. I'm not advocating, well, advocating if that. If people can really exercise consistently, that's great. No question. The problem is that we tend to beat ourselves up and suffer all these psychological I'm no good things when we make a resolution that we're going to run an hour a day or 20 minutes a day and then we don't keep it. Same with diet resolutions. Uh, these grate on your, your psyche. And so I'm a big advocate of finding something that is reasonable and doable that you can actually implement so that you're not beating yourself up when you fail. So, you know, sticking to the ketogenic diet, strictly speaking, for the next five years takes a lot of willpower. Just eating a variety of foods and being sensible and maybe skipping a couple of meals a week, that's with every, within everyone's grasp. And that's like 80% of it, right? Everything else is the, well, forgive me, the icing on top of the <laughs> vegan cake. But... Um, ex Exercise is healthful. Uh, cardio is good. Uh, and What do you like to do? Well, so um, I don't know that I am, am, the, am the model of health, but my wife and I walk 40 minutes a day in the neighborhood. We live in the hills, and so the walk we take in two 20-minute walks, one, one at 9 in the morning and one at about 3 in the afternoon. As I said, we try to keep clock going so our body gets used to it. Um, it, it requires that we climb up about four to 600 feet of elevation. Uh, and in effect, it's high-intensity interval training, uh, which is very helpful. Uh, I mean, if, if, you, if you like working at a gym or on an exercise cycle, uh, the, new, the new research uh, that is very well replicated is you, you huff and puff as hard as you can for 30 seconds. 
and then you walk for a minute and a half, and then another 30 seconds of as hard as you can so that you can't even speak, and then a minute and a half, two minutes off. You do that for 10 minutes a day, you've had a pretty good workout that's in many respects equivalent to you know, a one-hour power walk or a one-hour jog. So we do this sort of 40-minute high-intensity thing. Um, when it's raining or cold, I get on the elliptical for the equivalent amount of time, and I speed up and slow down and speed up and slow down. And, and then writing the book, instead of reaching for another cup of coffee in the morning, if I feel a little lag, I just get up, I take a walk around the block, I come back to work. Mm, I certainly find that moving around if you've been sitting at your desk for a while is a really good way to get your brain going again. Do you do the standing desk? I have a standing desk. Do you? I do, and I stand on one leg, and I do all kinds of stuff at my desk. People should walk past, and they wonder what I'm doing in my office. But I find it's very, um, it's, it, keeps the, it keeps everything fresh. It keeps everything moving, not to be sitting in one position the whole time. So here's something. When you're my age, I'm 62, it turns out that standing too much leads to nighttime leg cramps. You can't win. You can't, no. And, and <laughs> I mean, and so what I, I started with a standing desk. And, um, I, you know, it, it turns out people over the age of 60, uh, about 30 to 60 percent of them report um, a half a dozen nighttime leg cramps a year. And how many of you get nighttime leg cramps? So you're sleeping, everything's going well, um, you're, and then you wake up with this debilitating cramp that is just like the most painful thing in the world, and you try rubbing it out, you try soaking it out, and you still can't get rid of the, the cramp. Uh, and it, it, it seems to be, uh, if, if you're dehydrated, it's more likely to happen. If you've been standing too much, it's just, it's a, it's a real difficult thing. So I gave up the standing desk. Uh, tell you what, there's so many things that they, that they, or one doesn't know about when one's younger that, that become issues as you get older. I don't think that we're very well prepared to age. Um, I think we squirrel away our old people and there's not that much communication now between older, or not as ready communication perhaps as when we lived in small communities between old people and, and young people. Well, this is, this is a great point, and I'm so glad you brought it up. If we look at indigenous cultures, indigenous Americans, I just spent some time uh, with, in Canada uh, where there's a, a different kind of respect for indigenous cultures. Um, every place, that every venue that I gave a, a, a talk at, the person who took the podium ahead of me, well, the lectern, uh, said, uh, we are standing on land that used to belong to such and such a people. This was uh, a, a sacred site for the Cree nation or what have you, and we took a moment to reflect on where we were. In indigenous societies, um, they venerate the elderly. The Japanese venerate the elderly. Uh, the Japanese have the highest number of centenarians of any culture. Uh, Respecting your elders, venerating them, helping them to feel valued and important parts of society actually makes it better for everybody in all ages. Um, of all the prejudices that we face in our country, uh, recently prejudice against you know, brown-skinned people who come from south of the border uh, has been an issue. Prejudice against Syrians, because most of us don't know Syrians. Uh, prejudice against, well, racism, uh, sexism. Prejudice against LGBTQ people, uh, members of the LGBTQ community. And it, um, all of those prejudices 
are far from being resolved in our country, but they're at least becoming part of the national conversation. We have a gay man running for president who just came out first, uh, if, the, if, I, if I got the latest news right. If, if anyone knows the results, right? <laughs> um, but ageism still exists, and it's not on the table. And w- I think if, if, if the book serves one purpose for me, it, it's with your help, I would like to begin a national conversation about ageism. If you're 60 or 65... In this country, it's virtually impossible to get a promotion or change jobs. Um, My own father and grandfather were squeezed out of their jobs at age 62. And um, there may have been a reason to do that 30 or 40 years ago, but we're living healthier, longer lives than ever before. You've heard 60 is the new 40. Well, 80 is the new 60, and 100 is the new 80. And... Um, it, it turns out that, you know, we were talking about myths that we tend to, the societal narrative is that old, older adults are depressed. The peak age of happiness across 72 countries, including the United States, is 82. <laughs> so you've got a lot to look forward to if you're not 82 yet. <laughs> and if you are, I think that that number is actually an underestimate that's being squashed down by ageism. You're right. We tend to to put older people off by themselves. And the neuroscience of productivity and problem-solving is clear. The most effective problem-solving, the most creative problem-solving comes from consortiums or teams of people of diverse backgrounds, uh, women, men, um, LGBTQ, black, white, Hispanic, Uh, different income levels, different uh, countries of national origin, different ages. The variety of perspectives uh, allow us to come up with more creative solutions. And just think about Social Security. If if older adults were to continue to work and to earn salaries and pay into Social Security instead of drawing from it, well, there's one problem that goes away. Uh, And we also know that... um, Forcing older adults to retire um, when they have a wealth of experience in their jobs is actually counterproductive, particularly in medicine. Uh, if, you, if you need to get a, a, an x-ray, you're better off having a 65-year-old or a 75-year-old radiologist read it because they've had so much more experience. And radiology is pattern matching. They've seen so many more patterns. Surgery. You want the you want the the surgeon uh, who has done it five thousand times, not five times. And you know, if you're young, you haven't had enough opportunity. But it's not just medicine. It's law. It's engineering. It's art. It's uh, it's um, human solving solving interpersonal problems. All of that gets better with age, and it gets better after seventy, due to structural and chemical changes in the brain. So I. I think what you and I are doing, um, I'm probably old enough to be your grandfather. No, no. <laughs> You'd be an older version of my father, I think. Ish. Yeah. So, I mean, th- these kinds of cross-generational um, conversations are increasingly important. And we're seeing now some uh, facilities. They're kind of half senior living, half dormitories, where college students and seniors live together. Toronto's at the forefront of this. I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more older adults serving as tutors for young people. 
And um, I think I'd like to see uh, boomers and millennials working together to solve climate change. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a really awesome time to move into questions from the audience. I know that I could ask you questions all night, but all of these people have driven up here to the buck. Um, so it's now our time to take questions. There's a roving mic just over here. So if you raise your hand, we'll get to you. So this is really interesting. My mother um, is uh, 97. She'll be 98 this year. She has a poor diet. She hardly sleeps and she's never exercised. So, <laughs> however, her daughters are working hard to make sure that they do all those right things. Um, I want to ask you a question. Well, can about I just interject here? There are exceptions. Uh, yeah, I her, mean, her sister's 99. There, there are, look, I, I'm a big believer in playing the odds. Mm-hmm. So if you do exercise and you eat well and you don't smoke, the odds are overwhelmingly in favor of you doing well. Mm -hmm. But there are exceptions. Uh, Jeanne Clément, who was the oldest living person on record, uh, died at 123. She smoked two packs of cigarettes every day from the age of 10 to 117. Oh, my God. Uh, I don't know why she quit at 117. (laughs) Didn't she also make some comment that every doctor that had told her to stop was already dead and she was still alive? <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, the, the oldest living American just died, and I, I don't remember how old he was, 107 or something, and he said his secret was that he smoked two cigars every day and had three shots of whiskey. So, I mean, yeah, you can always find somebody like that, but that's the unusual thing. Thank goodness your mother... Uh, has whatever combination of attributes that have allowed her to live, and I hope she lives another twenty years. Uh, but I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bank on that. For yeah, me, me either. Um, so myelin levels, um, you said, help help to keep us youthful. So if we uh, take the fatty omega threes that we're supposed to, can the myel can our myelin levels ever uh, come up to where they used to be? Yes. Uh, but everybody's body is different. Everybody's physiology is different. And so, um, but yes, in, in some, in many cases, yes. I, I mean, I, I keep running into people in their 80s and 90s who are really at the peak of their mental abilities. And so whatever they're doing, you wouldn't know, notice any decrement. Uh, so you know, maybe they, they got a little bit of demyelination, but it, it doesn't show. I met with George, speaking of Republicans, I met with George Schultz to do research for the book. Uh, He's 99 now, but we met when he was 98, and he just published his 11th book. And speaking of working with younger people, uh, when I went to see him, he had this pile of folders on one side of his desk uh, and another pile on the other. And um, for those of you that don't remember, George Schultz uh, uh, held four cabinet positions uh, in two administrations, the Nixon administration and the Reagan administration. And um, he had these piles. And I said, what are these piles? He says, well, about 15 years ago, he said, he's 98 when he's telling the story, he said, I, I undertook this new research project and I realized after a few weeks I was in over my head. I didn't have the training to do it. And so I put it all in these bankers' boxes. But we just hired this young new guy here at Stanford, Jim Timby, 
And this is exactly his expertise, as it turns out. And so all these folders on this side of my desk are the ones that he read over the last couple of weeks. And he's going to come in in about an hour, and we're going to talk about them. And these folders are the ones that I'm going to give him next. He says, I can't believe how much energy this young guy has. He's terrific. And, you know, we're making all this new progress. And I said, it's great that you're working with somebody younger. Um, You know, it's just the kind of thing I'm talking about. How old is this young Jim Timby? Schultz says, 75. (laughs) (laughs) Can't believe how much energy he has. (laughs) But, you know, Schultz is 98, so there you go. Um, Hi, I wanted to ask you a question about um, how our genetic background um, how long your parents lived? How much does that have to do with how long you will live? Well, genes are part of the story, and depending on the particular disease or disorder or cause of death, genes can play up to a hundred percent virtually. I mean, if you get a, if you've got the gene for some incurable disease that's fatal, that's the end of the story. But for most of us. Genes play somewhere between 7% and 50% of longevity. Uh, and that leaves a whole lot that's under your control. And a lot of that comes down to lifestyle choices and mindset. Resilience, optimism, curiosity, conscientiousness. The, the other aspect of it is that stress plays a huge role in aging and in uh, fatalities. Um, My colleague from the Salk Institute, Elizabeth Blackburn, discovered uh, telomeres, which are correlated with longevity. Um, And I can talk more about what those are if you want uh, later. But um, it turns out that stress shortens telomeres, and stress is a direct cause of aging. So your parents could live to be 100, but if you uh, live under great stress, you could die at 50, and vice versa. Now, the important thing here that uh, Blackburn and others have written about is you can't measure stress objectively. It's what you find stressful. That neighbor playing their loud music at 2 in the morning might be fine for one person and just completely stress out another person to the point that their telomeres are shortening. It's your own coping style and your own individual reaction that counts. Uh, The question is, uh, do you think that artificial intelligence will ever approach human intelligence? So, as a neuroscientist, in theory, all of our thoughts and hopes and dreams and desires, all of our emotions are products of the brain. Uh, If I were to scoop your brain out of your head, you would have none of those things. And the brain is biological, and um, the brain is composed of 80 billion neurons that make trillions of connections. And in theory, if we could map all of those connections, and if we could recreate all of those neurons, then in theory, we could replicate you. Uh, there's a wonderful article about this by Dan Dennett uh, that he wrote maybe 30 years ago. Um, And yes, in theory, I think so. But in practice, I I mean, I don't see it happening for for centuries, if ever. So, uh, but who knows? Could you speak to caloric restriction and aging, please? Do you want to take this one? We can, we can, you can go first. 
Well, um, caloric restriction uh, has uh, been shown to work in mice and rats. We don't have enough data on it in humans to know. Um, what we do, the, the idea is that, um, so, I've talked about stress being a killer, but stress is also uh, a booster of your immune system and of, of healthy uh, systemic functioning of your body. You need a certain amount of stress. You need a certain amount of cortisol and adrenaline to, to kickstart your immune system and all other kinds of cellular housekeeping functions. And intermittent fasting seems to do that in a way that mimics the way we evolved, where uh, you know our hunter-gatherer ancestors couldn't just open the fridge and find you know, uh, Oreos and milk. So in animal models, particularly in, in worms, in the uh, C. elegans, um, caloric restriction can, can double life and it can reverse aging. In humans, if it's done in a prudent way, you don't want to do it if you've got diabetes. That can be dangerous if you're diabetic. Uh, you don't want to be crazy about it, but of the various major forms, like uh, skipping a couple of meals a week, 14-hour uh, fasts a few times a week or every day, you know, like, like don't eat between 7 p.m. and, and 9 a.m. That's a 14-hour fast. Or fast three days a year or fast a week a year. There doesn't seem to be any difference across those different kinds. It does seem to be healthful. We don't know the long-term effects Everybody I know in the field, including you and I, have started doing it because it seems as though uh, it's, it's, it might be neurally protective. It doesn't seem as though it'll be harmful, but we don't really know. I'm a big advocate for giving you all the information we have so that you can decide in your own life what the risks and um, uh, benefits are. It might be that caloric restriction will be terrible for you if you've been following it from, say, age 35 to 75, because our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't tend to live that long, so, you know, it's hard to judge based on them. Yeah, I mean, you covered a lot of the major points. Um, I would add to that that actually recently they completed a uh, lifespan study in primates showing that caloric restriction in primates, um, rhesus monkeys, actually also live longer. So here at the Buck, um, we're looking into some of the biological mechanisms whereby caloric restriction is this tool that does um, help organisms right down from the worm all the way right through to primates live longer. Um, I agree with the sentiment that actually caloric restriction is not necessarily sustainable or healthful for people to be looking at as a dietary practice long term, which is why um, strategies that mimic that... those Like rapamycin. Well, no, I wasn't actually going to go for, with drugs. I was even going to say you were talking about intermittent fasting. I actually think that we did evolve to be in periods of plenty, but then also periods of famine. And our body is designed to go in and out of, of those two metabolic states. And actually what, we're, what we see now in America with the obesity epidemic is that we're perpetually in a state of plenty and over excess. Um, and that we actually need to be mindfully reinstalling periods of, of um, deprivation. And, you know, it sounds a bit like a first world problem, you know, don't eat. We've got all the food in the world. And, and I don't want to be invoking that kind of sentiment here. But um, 
In terms of our metabolism, we know that we're programmed to, to see this uh, state of fasting sometimes. And for us here at the Buck and in my lab, we're looking at um, the biomarker of when the body goes into ketosis and the effects that that has. So it's almost like a sign that the body is flipping into that fasting state. Um, and we're, we're uncovering here that actually going into that state, as you said, does, does have effects on the brain and it has effects throughout the body um, that are potentially protect, protective. And so there are different ways that you can approach this in your day-to-day -day life. Um, we've mentioned here around in, in, this, in this last hour or so the ketogenic diet, but I don't want to go into that in too much detail now. I think it's, it can get to be quite a knotty problem, but it's very easy for all of us to think about um, closing up the window in which we eat because right now we get up and we eat at 7 a.m. and we might be snacking all the way through the day until we go to bed at 10 p.m., and um, there's been some really elegant work actually come out of the Salk Institute, I think Sachin Panda's group there. And they used an app where people would just log every time that they ate. And uh, people are just eating all the time. It's, it's, it's much too much, many too, many too, much too frequent uh, eating occasions. And so what they did in this study was they gave people a little square around you know, a certain time in the day. And they were like, keep all of your little eating incidents logs within this square. And then they looked at people's biomarkers of metabolism and metabolic health before and after this intervention where people could see on the app where they were eating. And it improved a lot of biomarkers. So I think that being mindful about... Um, when we eat, uh, how much we eat in terms of calories and the, the macronutrients that we eat, those are the three levers that we can pull to try and make our diet work better for our metabolic health. So I think it's, it's really important. It's something we all have a lot of control over. That said, everybody's body and physiology is different. And if you've got um, uh, insulin uh, difficulties and blood sugar problems, uh, for some patients, it's actually best if they do eat all throughout the day in small amounts. I mean, you have to, you have to allow for the fact that we're different. And I think, I think what we're going to find in the coming 10 to 20 years is that there are different genetic and physiological markers that will allow us to categorize you as, you know, maybe there'll be, roughly speaking, 32, I'm just pulling a number out of here, 32 different styles and, you know, if you're style 7 to 10, you should be on the keto diet. If you're style 11 and 12, you should be, you know, favoring carbs. I mean, you know, I, I think that there are going to be these interactions with individual differences that we don't yet appreciate. And for that matter, I think we're going to find that with cancers, that there's going to be some genetic marker interacting with stress factors and other things. Well, and Alzheimer's disease now, I think people are realizing that there are different, um, different contributing factors and people who have more one than the other. Um, so I think that that sentiment that one size doesn't fit all, um, especially with diet, that's really important for everyone to keep in mind. Um, I think, you know, we'll look, look at us two sitting here on stage. We're both dressed completely differently. You know, everyone's got different styles, whether that's clothes or whether that's diet. So I think... I don't think I would look good in a black dress and... <laughs> Next time, next time yeah. you should try one out. <laughs> See what reaction you get. Daniel, uh, Brianna, we have time for one more question, and then you know, people want to talk further. Uh, please purchase a book and wait online outside. So to, to what extent do you believe our beliefs uh, around aging impact our aging? Well, um, I do think that people who believe that they can stay. When I talk about successful aging, I'm not talking about somebody being famous like Julia Hawkins or uh, 
or Carmen Herrera, 104-year-old painter. To me, successful aging is that uh, however long you've got, however long you can live, um, you're able to draw enjoyment from the things you've traditionally enjoyed and the people you've traditionally enjoyed. You're able to develop new things that you find pleasurable. You're able to find meaning in your life, and you're able to contribute to society in some way, whether it's society writ large, just your family, just your neighborhood, just your social circle. It doesn't matter. Um, Some older adults take the view that they'll be able to keep on doing that, and in large part it can be influenced by um, role models that they see. Uh, I look at Jane Goodall at 89, who's going as strong as ever, and I'm inspired by that. So my story is built by that and by my own parents, who are 87 and 85, and taking up new hobbies. Uh, My father just signed a four-year extension to his contract as a professor. He's 87 now. He'll be teaching at USC till he's 91, at least. Uh, So, but I... In my own family, my aunt had a very different picture of aging, and she kind of folded in on herself at at age 60, and she died just a few weeks ago at 97, but pretty much from 60 to 97, she was mentally gone. She, She figured her life was over, and it became over. She didn't develop new interests after her husband died, uh, and... She went into a steep cognitive decline and had to be cared for for 37 years. So it, it does have to do with the story you tell yourself, and that's just in one family. With that, uh, <laughs> Daniel, thank you. Brianna, thank you. And the Buck Institute, thank you for uh, everything tonight. And we'll be out in the lobby momentarily. Thank you.